Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. This is House of Kim with Kim Zolciak Beerman. You guys, I'm so excited. So thanks, you guys, so much for tuning into this episode of House of Kim. We are number one right now. Just keep going and going and going and going. I poured my glass of wine at this point, you guys. I don't know if that gave me a really bad headache. But it's all good. It's okay. Be sure to subscribe to House of Kim on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One so you don't miss an episode. Don't be tardy for the party. That's so funny. <laughs> Whatever. Well, if there's one mineral you should be worried about not getting enough of, that is magnesium. I remember I told you before, I have a fellow back in the day who used to pound on me about the importance of magnesium. It's the body's master mineral. Over 300 critical reactions. And there are two problems. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s. That's why up to 80% of people may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one or two forms, when in reality there are at least seven that the body needs. If you take the latter into consideration, it's logical to conclude that up to 99% of the population may be deficient in two or more. Good news is that when you do get all seven, you're getting an upgrade. It's great. Sleep, pain, inflammation, it all improves and fast. That's why I'm excited about our friends at Bioptimizers, makers of the industry-leading digestive supplement. I love that P3OM. They've just created the ultimate magnesium supplement, easily the best out there. They even include trace amounts of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps make all the other forms more bioavailable. By far, the most complete magnesium out there, Bioptimizer calls this product Magnesium Breakthrough, and they're running a special promotion for you all at magbreakthrough.com slash drew. That is M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com forward slash D-R-E-W. And you can get an additional 10% off from the normal package price with the coupon code Dr. Drew 10. Dr. Drew 10, get 10% off. With one simple action, you can reverse magnesium deficiency in all ways. The Magnesium Breakthrough promotion is only available while quantities last. Magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. Again, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com forward slash D-R-E-W. And be sure to use that coupon code DrDrew10 for 10% off your order. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, keep keeping the wind in the sails of those that support us here. We appreciate it very much. And uh, do check out drdrew.com. we got a lot of fun stuff going over there, including that streaming show. If you sign up at drdrew.tv, you will see that uh, we send out a little blast when we do the one. And we're starting to take phone calls with the uh, daily program, which is not every day, but we try to do it, the streaming show. And also, don't forget about After Dark. It uh, is available at all drdrew.com. It is my distinct privilege to welcome the one and only Joan London to the program, co-host of Good Morning America from 80 to 97. It's almost 20 years there. Yeah. Uh, currently correspondent for the Today Show. 12 books under your belt. Crazy. <laughs> you can follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Joan London. And Joan is J-O-A-N-L-U-N-D-E-N. JoanLondon.com. Wild. It's a lot of stuff. The new book is Why Did I Come Into This Room? A <laughs> Candid Conversation About Aging. So let me start with the title. Uh, I felt reassured by that title. <laughs> yes, because doesn't it happen to all of us? Oh, my God. The most frustrating part about owning an aging brain is that kind of stuff, with the word finding, the name finding, the occasional, like, what was I just doing? I used to real, I used to do three things at once all the time, and I just assumed my brain would manage that. Now it's one thing, yeah. it's shrunk, and that one thing occasionally gets confusing. Yeah, I, I, I'm very proud to say I can forget what I'm doing while I'm doing it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. But you know, so, when you're 20, 
you don't think anything of it. You no. haven't been you haven't My been God. programmed to worry about that. But you know, once you get into your forties, fifties, and interestingly, science used to think that our brains started shrinking when we were sixty. But now we've learned that our brains, at least the hippocampus, that with all the memory making. It starts shrinking in our early 30s. Good times. That's so reassuring. But that does explain a lot of things. <laughs> well, it does. And and the, the part that we're talking about here is called working memory, right? Yes. It's the holding something in mind yep. while you are passing time or doing something else. And working memory, uh, I, I was talking to a neuroscientist once who said, you know, he, when he's formally evaluated people our age – and ask them, you know, that what they complain about. They complain about this, and they call it memory. But when you really test them, it's actually working memory because you do yeah. learn. You're able to learn new stuff. You do yeah. remember yeah. things. It's just holding things in mind. They phew, off, off they go. But the good Ugh. news is that it was also thought for decades that we were born with so many neurons. That's all we had, and we never got any more. But now we know that we can make new neurons. It's called neurogenesis. And that, to me, is empowering. And so I started looking into all the different ways. And yeah, you know, sure, crossword puzzles and all those things are fine, but it's better to learn new things you never knew, like a language or an instrument, but nothing beats exercise. Because all those uh, neurons that you make when you're doing things challenging your brain, they make those little neurons, but the neurons have to connect to the central system. And the neurons that you make with all the... Uh, oxygen and nutrients and blood and everything going up to your brain when you're exercising. Yes. Those neurons, those neurons are very good at connecting to the central system. So we can work to kind of bulk up our brain uh, the same way as bulking up muscles. And I have to tell you, I used to kind of moan and groan when I'd have to go get on the treadmill or go out and put my sneakers on. Then I found out, wait a minute, so I'm not just doing this to, you know, be a smaller size and take care of my heart. I mean, I love my heart, but wait a minute. Cognitive thinking? I'm going to keep my brain in, you know, thinking better? Then bring me my sneakers. And it, it gave me a whole new uh, thought process toward why I wanted to really go out and no, get that cardio exercise. It's a, it's a exercise. good motivator because it gets it's frightening. It's a great it's, motivator. It's, it's frightening to think of losing this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the other, I've talked to several Alzheimer's specialists. Gary, you may even find the show. I can't remember. We had the husband and wife team, uh, Alzheimer's team. And they were saying, and I've talked to many others since that agree with this, that really the major function, the major evolutionary function of this giant instrument we have within our skull is social communications. Yeah. And so socializing, it turns out, you're absolutely correct about exercise, but socializing is as important as new learning apparently. Well, you know, they say that there are the three top predictors of how well you're going to age are staying engaged in life social connections that you have, and having a sense of purpose. And I remember when I was a little girl, my mom always used to say, have plans. You have the fun of doing anything is anticipating it and planning it. But never has that been more true when you are getting older. Mm. Instead of like rolling up the carpet and saying, okay, I'm done, we have to be, we have to recognize that life is different. The age um, line has just expanded to such a great extent that when you're 65, like my mom thought when she was 65, she was going to probably die soon. Mm -hmm. By the way, she lived almost 95. Mm. And these days you have to realize that you may, you know, you got 30 years to plan very likely. Right. So we have to change the way we 
think about aging. And I think it's even harder for women. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to get to next because I think a big, yeah. big audience for this book is women and your openness about those issues, which I've been chanting about for some time. But go ahead. Let's hear your well, what, I think what you that think is important. We experience it different, obviously, because of declining estrogen. And that brings on a myriad of annoying, worrisome uh Effects. Sometimes more than worrisome. I mean, when you get to osteoporosis, and oh, sure. there's certain neuroprotective factors, too, that we Absolutely. have to worry about. But some of these things, they're very natural biological things. But women think that they're experiencing them just themselves. Like, what did I do to myself? You know, and I have the, you know, a weak pelvic floor, which is another way of saying that when I sneeze, I pee. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I have a loss of libido, a sex, uh, having sex is uncomfortable. It's because mm-hmm. the vaginal, the wall the thins. Mm-hmm. And like all these things are happening, the hot flashes and not being able to sleep, you know, and women, if they, if we don't talk about this, women think it's just happening to them. And what happens then? They lose their self-confidence. They feel less appealing. They feel less desirable. They feel less sexy. And how you feel about yourself affects the way you deal with everybody else in your life. So I think it's just, you know, it's like a ripple effect. And all of that tends to take a woman into herself because she doesn't want to have these discussions. Unfortunately, not even with her doctor. I talked to a lot of gynecologists. He says that they all say, they come in, they sit down, how you doing? Fine. And if you press them on it, they'll say, oh, yeah, all that happens to me. Mm We have to make it not taboo. We got these things shouldn't be taboo. Women do this crazy thing, and this is at almost all stages of life where they do this internal inventory where they're essentially blaming themselves for whatever's going on. It's yeah. like, am I taking enough time to myself? Am I, am I, yeah, yeah. As opposed to going, hey, there's something biologically going on here. Let me talk to my doctor, which is simple enough. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't speak up and do that, and it is to our great detriment because many of these things, there are fixes. If you just spoke to your doctor about them instead of suffering in silence and then maybe not having uh, – want to have sex with your partner. Now all of a sudden you got a relationship problem mm-hmm. on top of it. So remember years ago when Betty Ford came out and talked about her breast cancer? Mm-hmm. And nobody, her alcoholism. Nobody, yeah. Nobody had ever, ever talked about it before. Yep. Well, when she talked about it, it's like the floodgates opened. All of a sudden it was okay for everyone to talk about breast cancer. Yeah. That's been a wonderful thing. People don't have to suffer in it alone. They can talk to each other. Women who don't know each other, like on my social platforms, someone will say, I just had a mastectomy. I need a bathing suit. Five other women will come in and say, oh, call this, call this, go to this catalog. We need to get there with all of the other things that women go through. And, you know, sometimes women think it's just me. But I got to tell you, no matter how rich, no matter how beautiful, no matter how successful, she's also having the same problem in her yoga class that you are. It's never just me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the nature never. of medicine. Everything happens to everybody. So, yeah, I've got prostate cancer, and I've tried to raise awareness about that. And breast cancer puts you in a special category in terms of these other symptomatologies we've been descri- describing. I'm, I'm a big advocate for hormone replacement therapy, carefully managed, properly yeah. risk, you know, risk reward analysis done for a given patient. I'm a big believer in testosterone replacement, something that women aren't allowed to get because that's a male hormone. We're not supposed to say it. It has a massive effect on women, particularly libido and well-being and bone density. Yeah. All things that really – your ovaries are your main source of estrogen, progesterone, 
and testosterone. And it goes down. And there's an important way, there's an easy way to replace that. And when that estrogen goes down, that that dance that it's been doing with your insulin your whole life all of a sudden goes Mm -hmm. kaplooey. And women find that they're gaining weight. And they find that they can even become insulin resistant. That puts them at risk of type two diabetes and heart that's, disease. That's and the testosterone more than the estrogen. It really yeah. is. Now that now that there are people out there really advocating for testosterone, we're seeing that that has a bigger effect than anything else. The, again, that's all. It gets controversial. Yeah. It gets complicated. But the bottom line is. Speak up. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that internal inventory or once you've done it, also speak up to your doctor. There's things to be done. And you know what? If you don't have a relationship with a doctor where you feel comfortable, mm. then find another doctor because we really in today's world of specialists, we have to become a participant in our healthcare mm-hmm. plan, our healthcare team. Your doctors aren't all talking to each other. And a lot of women never go to a GP or an internist. They just go to a gynecologist. It's not good. So a little thing, a couple little things that I discovered that I thought were fascinating. Um, I wanted to figure out why do all of a sudden after having a fabulous waistline your entire life, boom, it's almost like, you know, the the fairy godmother that you don't want to see came down and like waved the wand and poof, all of a sudden like, what the heck? I've got no waistline. So I did a little research into it. And only only to find that the fat that we normally carry, the fat cells we biologically carry in our hips and our thighs during our childbearing years are there for a reason so that when your belly grows, you are balanced. And as soon as your body reads that you're not in childbearing years anymore, it migrates to your stomach. I I think that's really going to be comforting to a lot of women. At least they're going to know why it happened. And then part B to that is... You have to be worried about any fat that's above your belly button because that's the most dangerous fat. And so then it came to the idea of what should we really be watching, and it's our waistline. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had a doctor measure my waistline. Only tailor, a tailor has well, measured they, it. They will be noticed that we're trained to notice what's called central obesity, you know, to the degree to which that's an issue. I, I don't know that maybe you found a scale, but we don't have a, really a scale of you know, waistline sizes. Well, the top reason that women cite for not going to a doctor is that they don't want to get on a scale. Mm. And they will, of put off, they will put off that annual checkup for years just because they don't want to get on that that's scale. That's actually good information for us. Yeah. Oh, my God, yes. I, it's the number can, one reason. Yeah. So I just ask everybody in the book, go and get, go to the drugstore, get one of those little, you know, fabric um, measurement tapes and take your measurement. And if it, if you're a woman and it's over 35 and if you're a man, if it's over 40, like get with it because you can lose about eight, nine pounds and it'll take an inch off your waistline. Mm-hmm. But these are just all little Great pieces of information, and once you learn them, you can't unlearn them. True, and that's all in the book, right? Yeah. The book is, why did I come into this room, a candid conversation about aging? <laughs> you notice he forgot? I, I <laughs> And the speed of processing is down to, did something specific motivate you to write the book? You know, I think that when I was um, uh, diagnosed with cancer, I mean, I've always been interested in health. My dad was a doctor. I always thought I'd be a doctor, but... Didn't go there. And maybe was always a little uh, dissatisfied with the fact that I didn't go there. Then I got this diagnosis. Um, and I think it's sad. It's, so, it's just, I got to stop right there. It's so funny to me that people that have these amazing careers, 
it's there's always something else they wish. I know, <laughs> I know. If somebody's a rock star, they want to be I a writer. Know, They're a writer, mean, they want to be a television you know anchor. But when I was a little girl, <laughs> people used to stop us on the street all the time, and they would just embrace my dad, and they'd say, thank you for saving my life. It doesn't happen anymore. The, the, they, it's not and, like that, unfortunately. And then they would you, get you, down, they would bend down to be as low as I am, and they'd say, do you know how important your daddy is to our life, young it. lady? I and I just thought that's what I wanted to be. And I was always fascinated with the idea of disseminating information to help other people. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes us getting a cancer diagnosis or some other terrible diagnosis right, right. to really start concentrating and reading voraciously about our health. And the more I read, the more I got enlightened and interested and empowered. And then the more I felt, because my my job on this earth is to disseminate information, obviously, I just had to start sharing it. And then when I really started Thinking about all the things that happen to women that are annoying, they're worrisome, and as a matter of fact, they're, they really are problematic and we need to pay attention to them. But not just that, Drew, you know, it affects our psyche. It affects how we feel about ourselves. And mm-hmm. if we don't feel good about ourselves, how do you go out and have happy, fun relationships? How are people supposed to relate to you? So for me, just as much as telling them how their liver works or their pancreas works, I wanted to talk to them about happiness and about that pivot point because to me this is the silver lining of aging, that pivot point where you kind of exhale, you look back and you say, come on, give yourself a little pat on the back for a life well lived, for all those crises that you navigated along the way. Let go of all the stuff that never mattered anyway because this lets you kind of make that pivot point and say, wow, I got the second chance like, how do I want to be remembered? I could start working on that today, happiness, and I might have decades to work on it. The happiness research does show that over about 55, people start to be their happiest, end of their happiest stages of life. Yeah. It's just these all these other issues get in the way of that really being sustainable, right? All these other health issues and whatever the other issues related to hormonal uh, imbalances. It, it's, it's a point well taken. And your three points on aging, which is purpose – it's number one, staying engaged in engagement, life. Engagement. And number two, social connections. Yeah, engaged much, in social purpose. And social purpose, absolutely. Yeah, people, that's when they kind of come around and go, well, I want to make a difference. I want to do something. You know, yeah. What would make a difference? And the, the, the difficult thing that I've noticed, and I've said this before on this particular podcast, that people forget is that really to make a difference, you've got to first develop a skill set. And a, yeah. and a wisdom, which is what you're doing. What you're saying, you read all the stuff and you develop all the yeah. stuff, and now you're ready to give it back. Now you make a difference. Absolutely, with it. and it's so much fun. <laughs> and I try to say, like, the water's fine. Everybody, come in. Like, you know, if they only would just, like open themselves up to try new things and and saying, you know, maybe I'd be good at that. Maybe I'd enjoy that. And start looking for things you're interested in. Now, here's something I need to understand about okay. about Joe London. <laughs> Nine kids. Seven. Seven kids. Come on, that's a big nine. difference. <laughs> it's all incomprehensible to me. I have three, and that's like saturation. Oh, but I did mine. I had three Maybe wonderful th- daughters while I was working at Good Morning America. And if anyone ever thought that could get any harder, then um, I remarried, and I had two sets of twins 20 months apart. Oh, my God. Were you, were you working full-time then? I was working all the time, and but that was with the surrogate. I I should say, okay, but still, you still took them home. But oh, still, I mean, we would we would put those four little babes into this extra long bathtub that we had built in a bathroom off the family room. What period of time were two twins? 
They're 20 months apart. Oh, my God. So they're freshmen. They're freshmen and junior now, all in high school. And now we're at the point where they all just roll their eyes at you if you try to talk to them. Oh, of course. How many boys, how many girls? Boy, girl, boy, girl. Uh. And they all play sports, so that's four sports schedules. I understand. But you know what? You know what I'm doing in the afternoon? You're going to sports games? I'm in the bleachers at the high school watching a game that's so much fun. Oh, I know. And I chose that life. You know, that's fun. Um, So, you know, I think that you have to understand what your capabilities are, you know, whether – some people would find that incredibly exhausting and and think I have – should have my head examined. But for me, it's an amazingly wonderful life. I'm still working incredibly hard. And some people look at my schedule and say, what, are you crazy? Like I'm on a plane like every other day. But you know what? I'm lucky. I love my life. Yes. You love what you're doing. Yes. Yes. I get that. Yeah. I understand that. And, and it's hard not to do it when you feel so engaged in it. Yeah. Which is your thing, engagement and giving back. That's I am. What... I'm totally into it. But by, I knew I had to do this with a sense of humor. And I started writing the book. I wasn't sure I had a good enough sense of humor to actually do that. But I said, you can't write about all these annoying, crazy things if you don't put a sense of humor what one into made it. You, let's, let's get into it. What one made you most uncomfortable? Like effect? Yeah, no, which, which topic would you think, oh, am I really going to talk about this? And, and, is, and made you uncomfortable bringing it up? Well, I thought, first of all, it was probably going to be um, loss of libido and you vaginal, know, dryness. Sexu- vaginal yeah. dryness. And I started really delving into everything. And I found that there are so many different things that can be done about that one. Oh, yeah. And then did, I had, found – Did you talk about your personal – how you dealt, dealt with it exactly? And yeah, I mean – Do you, you know, want to do that? I go to I go to that to a certain extent. I share. Um, I don't know if I should share a story with you, but please, I sh- I- <laughs> if you're comfortable, because my my okay. my instinct is to go okay. towards what's so important. I'll tell you I can one- tell there's something important, even though you're you're no, flushing no, no. a bit. <laughs> so. But I mean, like um, what the doctors call urinary incontinence. Sure. So and you pee when you call it's, stre- it's called stress urinary incontinence. Yes, you can like case. sneeze and yeah. um, and do everything and pee at the same time. So, so, so I went to a party. I have a million questions. So so the first three kids were vaginal deliveries. Yes. So that's where this came yeah. from. Okay. So. But so, and by the way, the same thing that happens to you with a weak pelvic floor as you age, it happens to you right after you have a baby. You oh know, no! Every it's, new it's mom the, knows that. It's the it's the it's childbearing plus aging gives you the problem. That's okay, it. so I'll so. tell. I'm going to tell you the story that right. my daughter, my older daughter, said. You can't tell that, mom. Well, I said, why not? So I go to this huge big gala, and I'm in a long beaded gown, which those things weigh so much. Mm-hmm. And of course, you, in order to have a form-fitting gown like that, you you wear this incredibly expensive Spanx little number underneath. So now it's time to go to to the bathroom. And I say that as women get older, it's kind of like that um, the Pavlovian response. Remember, you know, ring the bell. F- Feed the dog, ring the bell, feed the dog, and pretty soon all you have to do is ring the bell, right. and the so, dog salivates. So, so as you get older, so the your bladder, muscle, the smooth muscle at the neck of the bladder the will Pavlovian, relax. Right, it relaxes, it relaxes when you start thinking about going. All you have to do is think about it, yep. and like you can't make it to the bathroom yep. fast enough. Yep. So here I am in this bathroom in this beautiful, gorgeous big hotel, and do you know how hard it is to to try to hold up a beaded gown and get a Spanx thing I, down off of you, a garment off of you? I, I can't us, say I do, but I can imagine. Yeah, it's hopefully really you don't. But let's just say the Pavlovian response won. I, I do really like RuPaul's Drag Race, but I've not okay. yet performed on it. So, so 
here I am, and like I have this Spanx that cost a gazillion dollars, and I have this tiny little beaded purse, which can barely fit my lipstick. Uh-huh. So I leave that in that little box there in the bathroom, of course. and all I could do was drop my dress to the gown to the ground and go back out into this party of very important people. And the le- the rest of the night, I just smiled, thinking, "I'm out here bare-assed." <laughs> <laughs> And no one knows it. It's and just nobody me. knows it. <laughs> so fun. I think my little wife would like that. That's but you know what? Fact. When you say that, when you tell that story, all of a sudden the people who you're trying to reach say, wow, she told that story. Right. It's me too. Really? Human. It's a humanizing. And it, it brings you together. And yeah. then they say, okay, then I can talk about that too. Of course. And now, the other thing that, that I deal with a lot is the the – Marriage and I've, we're living a lot longer than we're supposed to. Mm-hmm. In, in reality, I mean, yes. and we're we're able to do it quite effectively. But it's it's something that um, we didn't necessarily evolve for, and the institution of marriage hasn't really kind of adjusted to. <laughs> and so, a lot of the questions, you know, how do you keep relationships intimate, and how do you keep the sex life up, and this kind of thing. Do you get into that in the book? So I. And got it, married and, when I was yes, and yes. two different topics: intimacy and sexuality. They're different yeah. topics. Yeah. So. When I was 29, I got married, and um, I married a guy who was 39. Three great kids, but it didn't work out. 20 years later, when I was 49, I got married again. And again, I married a guy who was 39. I'll let you do the math there for a minute before it it. hits you. I got it. I got it. It's all good. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I remember people used to always be trying to set me up with people who were like like these rich businessmen – Boring. And I said, I want to make a decision so that when I wake up every day, I say to myself, God, I'm glad I'm waking up next to this guy. Yeah, I'm guy. excited to be with this person. I think, I, think, yeah. I think a lot of people don't really know how to find that. I or admire that him. Is. I admire what he stands for, the kind of guy he is. And no, you're t- we're it's, friends. And, and I, I say that whatever that is when you first get going can be there every day. You, but it's not the same. Come on. Let's all be honest. I mean, it's not the same. It's not the same. But I, for me, it, I, it reminds me of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. As long as it's one day at a time. And, <laughs> as long, and as long as today I feel as excited as I did yesterday, which all of a sudden they start to add up. All of a sudden it's 30 years and I'm, yeah. still, I'm still cool. I'm still excited. I think it's important to dis- – to- I like to go and play tennis with them and go to the gym with them and like we do things and I th- I think that that's important. Oh yeah. So, I mean to so, me that's how we keep our life exciting and fun and Right. You know if you don't you have to I remember who was it? Who is the Jaja Gabor once said husbands are like fires if you don't uh Fan the flame. If you don't fan the flame, it goes out. <laughs> but what it, it really is true for both sides. Like you have to kind of work at marriage, and when you and sometimes you have to realize that you go through these times where whatever starts it, you're just kind of like have a, a little bit of a se- emotional separation for a while. And sometimes I think people probably jump ship. I agree with you. I think that's the part that's really disturbing to me is that they assume, well, I don't want to bother with this, as opposed to. Yeah. The, the, the com- that's why you make the commitment. Yes. The commitment is because these things do wax and wane and you get through it and all of a sudden, oh, things are cool. Again. And you have to realize that not everything in life is going to be amazing all the time. No, nothing. Not everything. Yeah. Nothing in life is going to be that way, really, when you get right down yeah. to it. So you have to remember, 
Is that, do you want to wake up every morning and say, gosh, I really am so happy I'm waking up next to this guy? Then like figure it out. Let it, let it pass and make an effort to, you know, put the spark back. Right. Or, or just calm down and get through those, yes. those whatever just periods. Calm yeah. down. Yeah. Don't start running for the exit just because you're not whatever. Yeah. You're not I super think that's happy a horror. That I think we've made it so easy that it's a shame that yeah. probably. Well, think about it. We all make a commitment in front of God and everybody when we do this thing and, we we don't we don't really make the effort that we should. I mean, if there's problems, there's problems, and that's that. Yeah. But but in terms of just things aren't as lovely as you'd like them to be. So so your breast cancer. Uh, what was the treatment? Do you have lumpectomy and radiation? Or do you have a well? I had something called triple negative, so okay. I didn't have any. There were no uh, targeted treatments for my kind of cancer. Mm-hmm. It happened to be a virulent, fast growing cancer. Um, that can happen in other parts of your body. It just happens to happen in your breast. They know a lot more about it now, but at the time, there was no treatment other than ex- really aggressive chemotherapy. And I ne- I'd never had a friend or a relative that had ever gone through it, so I didn't know anything about it. And at first, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to put on a hat on and sunglasses and like I'll just kind of go in and out and get some chemo, I mean, get some radiation, maybe a quick lumpectomy. And then, I heard had? the news that no. I had to have chemo. Yeah. But I it's called had anaplastic tumor. It's an anaplastic tumor. Yeah, but it was a triple negative. Uh, triple, triple negative, but also anaplastic cells. Like yeah, it and aggressive. it was way back against my um, chest wall. Uh, so I never would have ever felt it really until it was like way forget about it. Yeah. And so I this had, is picked up on a mammogram. No, it was not. So if I have one message to give every woman, I went in and got my, my mammograms all the time and – one day I was sent to do an interview with uh, Dr. Susan Love, who wrote the breast book. And afterwards, she was saying, you do get your mammograms all the time, don't you, Miss London? And I said, oh, yeah. They're always so scary because they constantly call me back in for more pictures. Oh. And I freak out and say, oh, my God, did you see something bad? you have bad? dense breast? Is that the issue? And they would always say the same thing. No, no, no. You just have such dense breasts dense that it's breast, hard yeah. to see anything. And with that, Dr. Love get said, wait a minute. Get an MRI. You need to be getting an ultrasound yeah. every time you get uh, a mammogram. There's kinds of ultrasounds, too. Now, I would never have known that if I hadn't been sent on that interview and now here I am a couple years later. I asked my gynecologist, please write me a script for an ultrasound too because Dr. Love told me on that story mm-hmm. I should get it. And I had a th- clean 3D mammogram that day, mm-hmm. walked across the hall, had an ultrasound and found out that I had a two and a half inch tumor. So this is a complex landscape you're, you're talking about I know. Here. Uh, and then MR has figured into this uh, landscape mm-hmm. as well. And then cine uh, ultrasounds are also in there. And um, man, uh, talk to your doctors about this one because yes. just uh, don't assume. I think the the message I think of your book and your experience is don't assume the mammogram is the whole story because if it isn't. Any People, question you might want to see. I, I sometimes, if there's any question, I will have a breast cancer specialist, you know, an oncologist. Yeah start to make the calls on what to screen, how to screen, because they're usually pretty good at it. But before we get to that, because I remember I said once to Dr. Love, I said, I don't understand. Like, why aren't we learning this about this density issue? And he said, she said, because from the belly button down, that's what gynecologists get in this country. Yeah, yeah. And from the belly button up, the breast cancer surgeon gets that. Right. I said, but that makes no sense because, you know, right. you don't get to a breast cancer surgeon until after diagnosis. I, know. I, know. I decided I was going to make it my personal mission to make sure that as many women in America that I could possibly reach understood 
that there was something called breast density. Mm-hmm. You have fatty tissue when you're young, and by the time you get to be older, some women still have that, but almost half the women in America have dense breast tissue. Mm-hmm. It shows up white on a mammogram, and so does cancer. Right. It's like looking for a snowball in a snowstorm. Yes, exactly. So you need to know your density, and they've been collecting that information in mammograms for well, decades. But they, see, here's where it gets complicated, and I hope I'm phrasing the current data properly, okay. which is that the the I thinking was then you know the MR is a much more accurate way of screening the dense brand, but it's too expensive. It's, now it's too expensive. It it over it over gives it, false positives. Over, too many false positives. Yep. So we're we're still in a phase where we're trying to decide on specific standards for all of this. Which which is why I send people to the breast cancer person because they have pretty, yeah. good, pretty good judgment about because it. Because ultrasounds are technician dependent still and, and, at this point. And there's point. differing technologies yes. within the ultrasound. So it gets weird. It but gets what women weird. need to know though is that what is their density? We're yeah. told know your numbers. Yeah. All right, fine. Cholesterol, your resting heart rate, blah, blah, blah. Women also need to know their density. Yeah, yeah. I totally and agree. And it's in four I, well, categories. I, yes, go ahead. So if you're 75% dense or more – you need an ancillary test. And they haven't been telling women this. These, these, they have been telling the gynecologist. It is in his report or her report, but we haven't been told. So there's been like this massive grassroots organization going on. They've gotten different states to come up with better laws to mandate that uh, radiology labs tell women. But finally, finally, about one year ago when that massive spending bill got passed, that legislation was in it. So that mandates at the FDA because I testified before Con- – Congress, I testified before the FDA. And finally now they are going to require that no matter what state you live in in this country, that if you're a woman and if you've had a mammogram, you need to have that information. And there was no fiscal part of that legislation. Right. But I think – Everybody knew that once that domino fell, the insurance domino then becomes in question and they didn't want to pay for that ancillary test. But it's ridiculous because if you pay for the ancillary test and you find the cancer early – you're going to be. It's going to cost a lot less. I know, but you, they, you, the way the insurance companies and I even know. now medicine does it, which is you know how many positives per how many screens, yeah. how much is that? Is it blah, 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 blah. to what I said to the special prevent, preventative task force that makes up the rules? That mm-hmm. There's not one it's, doctor on that panel. So how many people actually do have to die before you think it's okay? to start giving us all the tests that we need in order to find our cancer. They didn't have an answer for that one. Well, be careful. If if we really <laughs> get government-run systems, those kinds of questions are, we're going to be asking for every disease. I state. know. It's so, but it's, we can better protect women. Yes, we, we can. We can better protect women from getting cancer, and we can better protect women from assuming that all the effects of aging – are their own problems that oh, they should hold inside and that Absolutely. they should feel bad about. Oh, my God. Well, thankfully, I feel like we're getting to a time when women are appreciated for their beauty as they age. I feel like that you're a great example of this, and, and I feel like that there's more and more of that. Am I, am I right? I, sh- I think so. I do think okay, so. And I, I, know I love women. My a age, lot right? of women out there might say, well, not in my business or not at my office place or whatever. But I do think it's getting better. I think that this age timeline just shot out into the future. And I don't know if everyone like wrapped their brains around it at the same time it was yeah. happening. And it's we're just kind of coming t- into that to embrace the fact that when you're 60, it's not like you're like got one foot in the grave already. No, no. 
not at all. We're relevant. We're still out part of life and we have so much to offer. Even though it seems like the, uh, you and I were talking off the air that there's sort of a preoccupation with youth and the millennial crowd and the all, – all we heard about for years was the aging of America. The baby boomers getting older. They're the major voting block and then we vanished. And when yeah. we actually aged, it's And just yet stopped. we're the big voting block and we're the big spending block. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't quite caught up yet. But, weird. But if we keep talking about it. <laughs> so speaking of talking about it, I want to go back to the breast cancer. So, okay. so having had a breast cancer, particularly an aggressive one – puts you in a whole different category in terms of the things you can do for all the things you listed. I know. Uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of, of hormone replacement therapy. Which you, I took you, up until the time I was you diagnosed. You can't do that, right. And you now can't I do can't that do that. And same thing with me. I, I actually think testosterone replacement for men is, is in, a, in a very carefully managed yeah. fashion and low dose is a good thing. I can't take that because I have yeah. prostate cancer. So what kind – do you make recommendations or explore stuff that women can do that can't take these things? I don't make recommendations, but I do uh, – I did the research, found out what was available. You know, there are all kinds of uh, vaginal uh, – Creams. Creams now that you can get over the counter, that you can get from your – uh, gynecologists that don't affect your uh, your, your your risk, risk for your risk. Ca- for yeah. cancer, and there are other things, and I talk about them in the book. It's something called the Mona Lisa Touch, you know, which goes in. It's actually what? inserted what into this? the vagina. Mona it's Lisa a, Touch. It's a thing that used to be used on that's still used in uh, like uh, face skin institutes that that increases the collagen. Oh yeah, it's uh, like in electrical skin. stimulation. It's basically yeah. the exact same yeah. thing, and it's. They, I mean, to be really honest, it makes like tiny little itty bitty cuts, sure, sure. which causes the p- collagen to then build up, and you yeah. can increase the collagen. It's a relative of the, of the vampire facials. Exactly. Oh. Okay. So, th- in other words, you can increase the vaginal, the thickness of the vaginal wall. Mm-hmm. There are other things that actually are used to increase the size of the vagina itself. Mm-hmm. And so, these are things that if you go to the doctor and you talk about and you find somebody you can get referred to a specialist, these things can really help. Oh, yeah. And so you don't have to just let, you know, I have one woman said, oh, I don't know. I just said to my husband, can't we just be friends? Oh, boy. <laughs> Doesn't friends, work. friends without benefits, yeah, please. It, it's, it, it, you, <laughs> you will lose something. And by the way, when people get it back, they are, they, they feel sad for when they didn't have it. You know yeah. what I mean? They feel like we really lost something for a while. Thank God we got it back. And kind of like I talked about that period of, you know, you go through those periods of time when you're not mm-hmm. like super lovey-dovey with your husband, mm-hmm. like wait it out. Mm-hmm. The same with a lib- loss of libido. Quite often there's a loss of libido that comes back. And that maybe doesn't come back in the same way, but, you know, people kind of have to wait that one out a little bit too. But if you never talk about it, you're never going to find any solution to it. Well, plus, if, you, if you're a woman and you're experiencing that, it, it's really uncomfortable when your oh, p- yeah. partner's coming at you, coming at you, and, and you start feeling guilty and resentful yep. and you know, and angry, so he. and he feels confused. And yeah, and you're on. embarrassed to talk to him about mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, it's a self, you know, kind of fulfilling problem that gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, it spins. I do, we just have to come in and say. These can't be taboo subjects because these you know, are natural things that are going are to happen to every things, woman. Yeah, things. yeah, absolutely. Uh, have the have been getting much back, feedback from the males? I'm sure women love this book. I mean, well, you know, it's funny. Every woman I talk to, whether they're in their 40s or 60s or 80s, they all say the same thing. You were talking to me. These are all the things that are happening to me. Of course. I'm so glad we can talk about them now. Um, I actually think it's – First of all, a lot of the information in the book is going to be applicable to any man. There's just, you know, specifics about estrogen uh, loss 
There isn't. Um, but there's so much of the book that's about, you know, I, I took it into mind, body, and soul. Mm. And the whole first part of the book is about the concept of age and how it can so uh, – it's probably the worst descriptive uh, description of us as anything. It's that it's reflective of the day you were born that's on your birth certificate. But we let that age to tell us how capable and how relevant we are and what people should expect of us. And so I want to, and I had been, and I took my kids to on a trip to Morocco, um, out into the Sahara Desert and we were, we stopped off the side of the road and found this uh, group of Jesus, sheep herders. Joan, and we, we, um, went into their tent and there was this old, old woman there, the matriarch. And we were all in the tent and she's making us peppermint tea with real mint in it, mm-hmm. you know. And we threw an interpreter. I'm asking her questions. And then I said, how old are you? Because she was this weathered, weathered, you know. And she said, what? I said, how old are you? She said, I don't know. They had no – they had. They did not keep track of days or wow. months or years. Oof. They watched the sun and the seasons and they picked up their tent and moved on when they needed to. She had no concept of her age. And I walked out of that tent thinking, Wow. And we are so preoccupied by age. Like, I thought that was really cool. I thought it was incredibly freeing. She had no concept. And when the day came that the seasons changed, that woman took down that tent. She rolled all that stuff up and put it on the back of a donkey and she went a hundred miles. She didn't even, she didn't, and she didn't say, boy, I did that like a 20 year old, you know? She just did it. And so I, I shared that, um, I mean, I want to share examples so that because sometimes it's hard to even grab a hold of these concepts where I ask, what is age? People need narratives. Yeah, you need narratives. You need stories Mm -hmm. to make you understand that there are people on this earth who have no concept of their age. Crazy. And they just do whatever they need to do in life and they never think, gee, I'm too old for this. So, you know, that's – I wanted to talk about age and – the the new expanding timeline and where there's so this big pocket of baby boomers and you know everybody has been waiting not to see how age is going to change baby boomers but how the baby boomers are going to change age mm. and aging and the whole last part of the book has nothing to do with your liver or your pancreas it has to do with your happiness you know i have chapters like um I want to be the person uh, – are you Are you the person you'd like to be sitting having lunch with? Mm. You know, and when someone's not there, you know, you, you and your girlfriends, you know, say, boy, you know, this about her or this. <laughs> well, guess what? When you're not there, they're having the same conversation about you. And I said, if you were going to have to put a placard on the front of you, what would be the descriptive phrase that would describe you? You know, interrupter, social climber, kind, considerate, and – you know, it, these kind of exercises make you think about yourself. And the reason why I wanted to do that and I wanted to talk about gratitude and letting go of regrets and mistakes and all the stuff that makes no difference in the world that just like hangs on you and takes drains your happiness. If you can do that, and I put them through lots of exercises. I actually put them through at the end of the book the exercise of writing their own eulogy. Well, see, that's interesting. I was wondering if you went there because, like, you know, oh, I did. Yeah, the the uh, sort of the phrase that summarizes your life, as people put it. You know, when you, my mom did it. My mom sat down with me 
because she had, we all, I remember very well her writing my dad's eulogy right after his death. She sat down with me one day and said, I want to make sure everybody says the right things about me. And I don't want a sad funeral. She like, swear to God, she did like a primetime show, but she wrote her eulogy. And so when the time came, I had that. That's the most amazing gift anyone can give their child. Mm. And it's also like, why not take control of what people are going to say about you? That doesn't mean you're a control freak. It means that you care what people are going to say. Was it funny? She was funny, and but I I did take some literary, you know, um, leeway, and I made it even funnier. Um, I told this story about how when I went to her to get her clothes that she was going to be buried in in her casket. She wanted to be married in her white St. John outfit with the gold trim and her gold Chanel bag and her gold shoes because she said, when I meet your dad up there in heaven, I want to look sharp. Oh, my God, that's funny. And so I had all this, and I went and got it, and then I remembered, oh, wait a second. The last few years of kind of independence years, I didn't have any underpants. Uh-oh. And one of the lovely young ladies that worked there said, wait a minute, I just bought some. And she brought me these little bikini underwear. So now I go to the funeral parlor and I give the guy the white St. John suit, the shoes, the purse. And then I said, and these are the pants. And when my mom arrives in heaven and she sees my dad and my dad says, where'd those come from? She's going to have some explaining to do. (laughs) And that's how I ended the eulogy. That's cute. Um, So, but the it's not a morose exercise. No, no. It's an exercise that makes you say, well, people are going to be coming by and saying things about me. What are they going to be saying? Are they going to be saying, God, I wonder which way she's going to go? Or are they going to be saying that you were kind and always there for them? Because whatever it is you wish that they would be saying at that moment, start working on it. That's my purpose for writing the eulogy. Got it. Start working on it today. So that's the spiritual piece, really. That's right? the spiritual piece because that will help – yeah. Set your path for the next yeah. whatever, you know, 20, 30 years. Do you get into any other spiritual kinds of stuff? There's so many ways that people think of that, conceive of that. Gosh, I don't know. Um, my last chapter, by the way, is I want to be cremated. It's my last chance at a smoking hot body. Oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> like I say, you have to be funny. My chapter on incontinence is I laugh so hard tears roll down my leg. Like, because <laughs> yeah, you want to, you want, to keep them with you because it is important information, yes, yes. but that's how you can take them along with you. Yes. I mean, it, it's spoonful of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Comedy, comedy makes it digestible. Yeah. Well, it, it – it, so no higher power stuff or any of that business so much. No, yeah, not yeah, really. Yeah. I'm kind of a tell it and, like it is girl. Yeah. And, and we talk about aging. Do we talk about death? I don't remember that being in the book so much. It wasn't really so much about death as um, – in my last chapter, um, you know, I talk about um, how you want to be remembered, like right. that dash. You know, the, there's that wonderful poem called The Dash. Mm-mm. Oh, it's – you have to look it up. Okay. Go go Google it later. Look it up and read it. The Dash. Because okay. it's just called The Dash. Um, it's really a famous poem. And I had heard it at a funeral and it really got me to thinking. So that little dash, that dash, that little thing represents – the time between you were born and the time when you die. Oh, the dash in the, in the years. So the what years. does that dash – Oh, that's interesting. What is your dash going to represent? Yeah. Do you want it to represent something? I mean I've said that if mine represents – not that I want to be defined by breast cancer, but if mine reflects what I've done in the world of breast cancer, I'll be good with that. Right. But 
when you think about that, that allows you to really kind of think about what kind of person are you. Gary just sent me the dash. He texted oh, it to me. Okay. That's, how, that's how good he is. It By is Linda wonderful. So, yeah, so Linda Ellis. Yes. Less quick to anger, show appreciation. Nice. And it also talks about how, you know, if you're, you can still have time to determine what that dash is going to represent. Well, listen, a friend of mine's uh, da- uh, sister Remember, you don't live out here, though. You live in. in I'm from in Sacramento, but we, I live in. We had a huge, wind, a huge Santa Ana windstorm about just about three years ago, and um, a tree fell on his sister's car and killed her. Just oh, boom, God. out of the blue, out of the blue. And this was a woman who was highly engaged in the recovery community and musician, and and so he went around trying. Well, I guess I can say it's Mike Carano. Yeah, it's Mike yeah. Carano, and and. Uh, he has been doing a lot of thinking about death and talking to a lot of people about it for a couple of years now. And he's gotten to the point where he thought, oh, my God, it's not about death. It's about, it's about living. It's about living. It's, and, and, that, and live like she did. Yes. That's the message. Live the way with, the, with all the engagement and yeah. the service is what you're talking about that really makes this a meaningful experience. And that gives you that sense of purpose. And there was a wonderful story of what Mahatma Gandhi was leaving on a train and all the reporters were coming and they kept saying, you know, what is your message for the people? What is your message for the people? And he got onto the train and he wrote on a piece of paper and put it up at the window that said, my life is my message. Mm. And I mean, that's just, I'm, I love quotes. I love those things. I, they, they like impact me. I remember them. I write them down. I save them. I put them in my books. Because I think that when they're profound, they're really – they're impactful. Yes. I mean, yes. Aphorisms, right? Yeah. And, I mean, and my, that's how Nietzsche wrote. And the whole end of the book that, yes, I do deal with having you write your own obituary, Yeah, uh, which is but pretty it's not easy about now. It's, it's, it's not about yeah, death. It. it is about living. How yeah. you, it's about aging and how you're going to, going to decide how you're going to live the rest of your life. Yes. And, and fill that dash meaningfully. Yeah. Fill, so – you're an extraordinary person, uh, and Thanks. what what makes you so? Um, like, did, like I'm just curious was was there? Any, I am a Type A. No, in, I get all the, that. In that, I've always wanted to go. You know, I got to tell you something. A lot of it has to do with my mom. That's what I was expecting. So something, something somewhere in your childhood I, got I in, was, into you. My dad was a real missionary as a doctor, but he was probably gone all the time. Yeah, he was, but I got, I got you, positive affirmations not, from both. Not that it bothered you, but a cancer surgeon is gone. <laughs> but my mom was the one who was always there saying, you can do anything you want, reach for the stars, you know. Um, and she, uh, I think that when I, and I skipped a couple grades, so I was 16 years old when I started college. Where did you go to college? In Sacramento? Were you in- no, my, well, my mom said, you're too young. You gra- you um, you're applying to UCLA and UC Berkeley and all these Stanford and yeah, like, yeah. I-, I can't have you on a college campus. No, when you you're go to 16 years old. Or yeah, yeah. No, she found um, a ship that went around the world. It's the, now called the Semester. The yep. Chapman thing out wow. of Chapman, California, out of Chapman University. Crazy. And at that time, it was called World Campus Afloat. Yep. And she came to me after I was getting my you know acceptance letters, and she said, Mm-mm, "This is what you're going to do. You're going to go on this ship." And I left uh, San Francisco, flew to New York, got on the ship. We went around the world, 15 countries over the course of a semester. She said, I want you to expand your horizons. I want you to understand that there's way more to life out there. And you've got to find your place in it. And you've got to figure out how you're going to make your mark on this earth. 
And that really changed things. I came back and immediately went to Mexico because I heard about this other. I went to Universidad de las Americas for three years. I went there for three months, stayed three years, came back. And that probably, all of that travel probably helped me get my first job in television. But here again, this is this is what my husband always says. This is the page out of the playbook of Joan London. Having dinner at the house, getting at the end of college, friend is over. He's a salesman at the NBC station in Sacramento. He says, and this is 1973 uh, um, to 74, you know, they're going to put more women on television. Like all these women's groups right now are all, they're suing the New York Times, they're suing the everybody. The FCC is really putting pressure on local stations to put women on television. You ought to consider that. Now, I was not taking journalism or anything in college, and I could have really easily let that, it's a passing comment at a dinner table. The next morning I got up, I made a call, I called that news director, and I got an interview. I wrote some questions. What is this in Hell this you forum? This You're- 23, 24, 23. And I went into the television station, and after about five minutes of questioning him, he said, well, clearly you know how to write an interview. So he took me into the studio, and he auditioned me. The Vietnam War was going on, because let me tell you, a lot of the copy was very hard to read. Um, And then afterwards, he said, I really think that you have a lot of potential, but we don't have a job. But the weatherman was back behind the set. And he followed me out the door and he said, I want to make you a proposition. He said, there, a few stations around the country are, are starting to hire what they call a weather girl. And I'd like to make you Sacramento's first weather girl. Wow. And I, I, in my head, I'm thinking that sounds completely boring yeah, and yeah. nothing I would ever want to do. But somehow I recognized an it's opportunity. Point, so yeah. I said yes. So I started working with him for, you know, I don't know, $25 a week or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Is that like a little paid intern? And within six months, I was on the air. And within another six months, I was anchoring because there were no women around. And so it, everything went, you know, really quickly. And within two years, I got called by ABC in New York and I went to New York to work for WABC. Interestingly, as a field, as a street reporter, which I'd never done. Mm-hmm. So I remember I went to the first fire. And I get out of the car and I'm trying to talk to the fireman. Pretty soon my cameraman comes to me and says, you can't talk, talk to those guys. <laughs> They're, busy. <laughs> They're busy fighting the fire. You have to talk to the guy with the white helmet. That's yeah. the fire chief. Like I knew nothing. Uh-huh. But I have learned that every time someone says to me in my life, do you think you could do blah, blah, blah? For God's sakes, just say yes. And may, then may figure I, out how to do it. May, may I suggest your next book? Okay. I don't, I don't want to I don't okay. overshadow this one. But millennials need a big dose of what you're talking about. Okay. I don't know. What you're, wait till you see your, your kids, when they your, your current high school kids, when they head towards college, if they're part of what's going on and yeah. seemingly with this um, younger population, they don't get that part. I know. They want their ultimate muse yeah. fast. And I don't blame them. I think that's a great thing. But they, they if there's a way you can communicate to them yeah. that – Listening to those instincts, following those opportunities, being open to every opportunity. Now they'll push back. You happen fast to you. Uh, blah, blah, I've been here for two years. Nothing's happening yet. Mm, I, I'm sure you'll figure out a way it to takes, help them. And it takes hard work. Yes, but the hard work like really pays off. And I, I have people sometimes say, "Wow, you've had such an amazing life. You're so lucky." It's like 
No, I'm not lucky. That's not how I had an amazing life. I was. You killed yourself. I killed myself, and I said, and I said, yes, yes. And and you're still killing yourself. That's the other thing. You're still killing yourself, and that and that's how I know you've always done it that way. Yeah. Right. It's it's just you're still doing it. It's been fabulous. I got it. Let's leave it at that. The book is called, again, My Aging oh, Brain. Again. Why Did I Come Into This Room? A Candid Conversation About Aging, which we just had. It is out now, joanlondon.com for details, at Joan London on all the social media platforms. Did we leave anything out? A place for moms? Do you want to mention anything about that? Sure. Or? I mean, I'm a spokesperson for them because they help solve that problem for families and help them figure out what level of care their loved one needs and you know where they'll not only just be safe, but will be happy. It's another thing about aging that we have yeah, to really plan yeah. for those levels of care and got to and talk to every start talking early about it. You know, yeah. and people we were Joan and I were talking before the mics here and uh, before the mics heated up, and we were saying that people are generally happy when they're around their peers. Yes, don't, don't leave that out. Yep, and you need to constantly be making more and new friends, and sometimes the friends you make when you're they're the same age, where you have the same concerns and the same. You know, joys to talk about are some of the best friends you can make. Why did I come into this room? It's such a frustrating thought, but it was a great title for a book. <laughs> and uh, Joan, it was a real privilege, and uh, thank you so much for coming by and um, letting me discuss this. Oh, with it's you. my privilege. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. And we'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D R D R E W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.